Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Did you see the movie The Ring? I remember seeing that in theaters in 2002 and loved it. Then I remember seeing the Japanese movie it was based on and the American sequel, and they were, well, they were okay, but not as memorable. And now there is a third Ring movie, which I haven't seen because of all the people who saw it before me gave me rather poor reviews. Peter Sutterman, writing for Vox, starts off with a negative review of Rings, but then delves into an exploration of the different kinds of scares, using Stephen King's types of terror as a template. Sutterman casts quite a bit of shade on the jump scare, which I agree is the cheapest of scares, but despite that kind being the one purchased on double coupon day, it still spends. I've left a link in the show notes, and I think it'll be worth your time to give it a read. On the topic of movies, there is a movie that made quite a splash at Sundance. It's a horror anthology produced by women, including Karen Kusama of The Invitation, which I believe I told you, Children of the Night, I thought was terrific. Emil Niazi, writing for Vice, has an interview with Jovanka Vukovic, who directed the short The Box in XX. Short story fans may recognize her as the longtime editor of Rue Morgue magazine. Link to the interview will be in the show notes, but I look forward to checking out this movie, XX, once it makes it to theaters. But before that, we have three stories for you this evening, so I hope you brought some snacks. First up, 
Scott Bayor is a writer and editor, primarily of horror literature. Hinprick is one of his favorite stories and has been expanded into a novella, yet unpublished. Scott Bayor can be reached via email at lambs.kingdom at yahoo.com, and link to that email address will be in the show notes. Listen with me to Scott Bayor's Hinprick. A wee girl with two pinpricks for a nose smiled at me through her narrow mansion window, her eyes glistening like carrion beetles in the morning sunshine. Her fingers on the stone sill where she stood were smeared with fresh blood. She had killed something, but her features showed a lunacy that would send her to relatives if what she had slain was human, and give her a slap on the wrist if twas only her dog. It turned out to be human, and twas my lot in life to be hired by the butler of Mr. Renault as the child's personal coachman. My first assignment was the following morning to drive Charlotte from her home in Rathmines, Dublin, through the Wicklow Mountains, to her uncle's manor in Corsilla. An outrider had gone ahead with the revolting news. It would be a long day's journey forcing us to pass through Glen Nagruach, a gloomy glen haunted by highwaymen and other denizens of low social esteem. Under no circumstance whatever was I to allow her to exit the foreign hand, her privy needs, while travelling to be met with a chamber-pot. I dozed an hour at most that night, my mind unable to extricate itself from wondering who the babe had axed to death that sunny morn. As one may imagine, when we reached the darkest portion of the glen we were indeed waylaid and told to stand and deliver, for twas our money or our lives. Charlotte swung open the door of the coach and smiled, and the masked highwayman smiled with her eyes taken aback by her sweetness. She then drew two flint locks and slew them who had hailed us so boldly, a ball entering an eye socket of one, the breast of the other. Pinprick, I said, get back in quickly. They're not the only two cutthroats living here. I like that you call me Pinprick, Mr. Coachman, she said as she swung herself back into her seat and slammed the door shut. I have a crossbow in full quiver, Mr. Coachman. What do you have up there? Nothing to your concern, I replied as I snapped the rein so hard, all four horses whinnied in anger. I figured then why I had been sent on the precarious journey alone. No need for extra servants when not required. I don't like mean people, Mr. Coachman. You should be nice to me. My fingers do bad things to people who speak harshly to me. So I hear, I whispered, hoping she hadn't heard me. I heard you, she said. Inexplicably, we escaped the glen without further incident. And moving along at a fair clip, when to the curdling of my blood I registered a piercing scream which nearly unseated me. It was followed by a stop. Did I stop? Of course I stopped. My father went to his grave, provided me with an education, which included knowing when I was out of my depth with terrible enfant. There was once a man from Kilkenny, Charlotte sang as she relieved herself behind a spiny blackthorn, who thought he would never get any. I plugged my ears with my forefingers and closed my eyes. This was not happening to me. This was not happening to me. Listen to my rhyme, Mr. Coachman. Must I, Pinbrick? I heard myself ask. If you choose not, the wee murderess replied, brushing my sleeve with fingers still blood-stained from the morning before. Why hadn't someone washed her hands, God in heaven? I begged my guardian angels to guide me safely to her awaiting Uncle Pilchard. I suddenly felt an indomitable angelic presence, which indeed was comforting, and my belief remained constant that God would not put upon his children any more than we can bear. 
But why had I been chosen of those with far better credentials, fellow murderers, for example, to escort a diminutive Elizabeth Bathory? Surely this was another instance, as with Job, where the devil had wagered with God concerning my ability to endure the unthinkable, and God had accepted the challenge. Mr. Coachman? Yes, Miss Pilchard. Please call me Pinprick. Yes, Miss Pinprick. Pinprick by itself will do. Right. Pinprick. What can I do for you? I opened the coach door and released the stairs for her. Well, she replied as she rolled her eyes, I'm hungry and the basket of food prepared for me is not to my liking. I don't care for soda bread and apples much. My blood went icy. This meant that we'd have to stop at Kilmacullough, which was only down the way, and purchase whatever it would be to her heart's delight. I wish to use my crossbow and kill something to eat, like Robin Hood, she said. I went light-headed and fell against the lacquered coach, the sweat on my ungloved hand causing me to slip quickly along the surface so that my next contact was an eyebrow on the brass lamp. Mr. Coachman, she snapped her head to gaze into a nearby stand of gorse, did you see something that frightened you? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did see something frightening. What was it? She bounced on her toes, an unsettling glee in her voice. Oh, you're bleeding. I staunched the seepage of blood with my kerchief. What did you see that terrified you? Not answering her, which made her pinch her lips together and glare at me, I found strength enough to help her back to her seat and to find mine. It would have only been a few more leagues and we would have arrived safe if not sound, but we needed to stop again so she could kill something. What would she kill? How would we cook it? We would be all night reaching our destination at that rate. My post would likely be lost. I might even be put into custody for kidnapping. We drove on. Stop at the wee wood near Kilmacull, Mr. Coachman, cried Charlotte, head thrust out of the window. We're near there now, I can tell by the sweeter air. And we just passed Bloodland. I couldn't help myself. Bloodland, I cried, trying to direct my voice backward at full gallop. It's nothing, Mr. Coachman, she cried back. We rode on in silence. I reflected upon driving straight past the wee wood near Kilmacall, but then considered that a crossbow arrow could easily pierce the roof of the coach. Good thinking, she said. I froze where I sat. Here, Mr. Coachman, pull over here by the wee wood. Seeing a copse of oak growing in front of farmland, I said not a word, halted the team, dismounted, and prepared to water them. I was glad to was near summer solstice, for we had many hours of flight left, though my pocket watch showed half past five. Do you like my crossbow, Mr. Coachman? I turned and saw that the medieval weapon which had singly altered the face of warfare in that distant era was pointed, loaded with an arrow at my privy parts. I hopped like a man on fire and hid myself behind the nearest tree. I wasn't going to shoot you, Mr. Coachman. What are you going, going to do then, frighten me to death? Maybe. And careful with your tone, she replied. I have funny fingers. They like to dance. Then she trumped off into the wood. The team also properly. I climbed back into my seat and, shaken like a sheep fuzz in the breeze, packed my own paw pipe with a rich cherry tobacco, lit it, and tried to relax. Mr. Coachman! I do not remember taking myself down from the foreign hand, nor do I remember running into the wood. After the memory of Charlotte's scream colouring the surrounds like a nightmare, my next recollection is seeing a handsome lad crawling toward me, his eyes bulging as he gasped for air, an arrow piercing his left jugular and spine. I got one, Charlotte cried, one of the shepherd lads. Oh, will he be tender enough to eat? I hope I haven't made a mistake, Mr. Coachman. 
She fired another arrow from the evil contraption, this one squarely entering his heart. He fell with a thump to the dewy grass. Mmm, smells wonderful, doesn't it? I so love the scent of freshly spilled blood. They wouldn't let me eat. I had the crossbow in one hand and Charlotte in the other, dragging her by her collar back to the coach. How I accomplished it I do not to this day know, but soon I had the child tied securely and placed in her seat. She screamed throughout the next leg of our journey, and at first I wish I had gagged her. But when her screams turned to tears, I could not be quite so hard-hearted. I'd rather not have stopped, yet again risking a mishap to my person, but she was, after all, but a wee girl. When we finally arrived, two tall footmen, several servants, and Charlotte's uncle all appeared as if they greeted the osser itself. I was ushered into the great house for fear that I was dying, and a quick glimpse into an outsized wall mirror showed me the reason for their pallid complexions. Though I knew the reflected figure to be me, the greenish skin and dishevelled hair of a lunatic were completely incongruent with my usual demeanour. Sir, Lord Perrault took me by the arm and led me to a sitting room decorated with a bevy of pinpricks, dour-faced and dark-eyed cousins. What is the meaning of your arrival here with my niece? Arrival? I was still very much dazed and on display for this audience of crows. I. Were you not properly briefed? What should I have been briefed about, sir, I managed to ask. A chorus of whispers circled the room, black-haired heads tipped toward one another as Pinprick's noble family members consulted. Lord Perrault looked rather helplessly around at his brood, perhaps seeking someone else to do the talking. When no such saviour rose to the occasion, he cleared his throat loudly and said, Based on your, uh, curriculum vitae, shall we say, you were hired to perform a certain service for the family. I'm afraid I did not follow you, sir, I replied. I've done as requested. The child is quite safe. The gentleman closed his eyes. Beads of sweat had erupted over his features. Are you not John Copper, newly released from Dublin Castle Jail to, shall we say, serve the pilgrimage parole clan with a most necessary, but particularly unsavoury duty? Copper. Copper, did you say? No, my surname is Cop. I'm John Cop. Oh, God in heaven, he replied. He put his hand to his forehead and began to pace back and forth, obviously deep in thought. There's been a terrible mistake. The Russian bustle of yesterday, surely, all the confusion. May, may I ask, Mr. Cop, how you came to be hired? A reputable reference made an appointment for me a fortnight ago, I said. That damn butler Renault came, Perrault's reply. His jowls jounced with each word. His infernal senility has caused us far too much pain this time around. Sir, I said, if I may be permitted, I am quite sure that I do not understand what has happened. Mr. Renault is very cordial, if a bit flustered. Might I inquire into the particulars, even a wee bit, in order to clear my own mind? Lord Perrault again consulted his family with a look. They in turn all looked at me, taken in my bedraggled state with unblinking coal-black eyes. I shrank under their scrutiny, finding not even a hint of sympathy in any one of them. I assume Perrault received familial approval that was invisible to me, because he placed his large hand on my shoulder. You, sir, or should I say the murderer John Copper, were hired to dispatch that devil Charlotte somewhere on the highway from Dublin. Dispatch, I whispered, not my sweet Charlotte. Say you something, Mr. Cop. With a purloined bag of currency we made amends to the clans of the two murdered thieves, one of which ironically had been John Copper. He had apparently decided not to make himself present for his pilchard manor assignment, despite the fact that it was Perrault who had secured his release from jail so he could perform that particular duty.
Charlotte and I today abide in a comfortable stone cottage hidden in the golden oaks and ash of Glenacruach. Though my education and my father's memory may be sullied by my present profession, I cannot see the disturbed child assassinated over a condition of mind completely out of her control. We do well for ourselves when the affluent travel through this perpetually shadowed woodland. Furthermore, Charlotte has taught me to fashion and fletch crossbow arrows. John Cobb, Highwayman That was Scott Bior's Pinprick, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor's of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He rarely pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love, learning and to be like the warriors and Renaissance men and women of old, artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, Jedediah. Our second story comes from D.P. Watt, who we aired a story from back in episode 195. He returns to us again for another one. D.P. Watt lives between Scotland and England in an otherworldly, misty borderland. His collection of short stories, An Emporium of Automata, was reprinted by Evenvale Press in early 2013, and his second collection, The Phantasmagorical Imperative and Other Fabrications, was published in 2014 with Egalius Press and is now available in a paperback edition. He won the Ghost Story Award 2014 for his story, Shalabala, published in the Ghost and Scholars newsletter, number 26. His third collection, Almost Insentient, Almost Divine was published in 2016 by Undertow Publications. You can find him at The Interlude House or www.theinterludehouse.co.uk. Link will be in the show notes. Lend me your ears, children of the night. We will now listen to D.P. Watts' Memento Mori. I must confess to you that I was not a journalist. In truth, I was a thief. 
the antiquities and curious objects that had been gathered by Mr. Umbroldi over fifty years had become legendary, even more so because of his eccentricity and reluctance to catalogue his collection. There were collectors across the world that suspected Umbroldi of having secured the last few items that would make their own collections complete. He never replied to their letters, personal visits, or other modes of communication. I was surprised, therefore, when he accepted my first application for an interview. No doubt you were also shocked at the ease with which you gained an audience, or perhaps you have plied him with gifts and pestered him with requests for many years. Well, either way, you are here and have to listen to my story before you are able to begin your own. If you will allow me a few minutes of your precious time, I feel obliged to entertain you with a short tale. Perhaps you could even call it a fable. I had heard something of Carl Umbroldi many years before. You see, I was interested in Japanese antiquities, principally inro boxes, netsuke, and ujime, but I also dabbled in militaria, and had heard that Umbroldi had a collection of yari heads and items of samurai armor including some kabuto and rare examples of mempo. These items fetch good prices these days. Everything I had heard of Umbroldi's collection reminded me of the eccentric Charles Paget Wade and the collection he had gathered at Snow's Hill Manor. Umbroldi's collection, though, sounded vaster and just as idiosyncratic, an emblem of himself as every true collector should be. I came across the name again in an auction catalogue. Incredibly, he was parting with a fine Harbrecht Amorelli sphere from the 1570s. Perhaps he was beginning to run out of finances. It often happens later in the collector's career, and was attempting to consolidate his collection around some specific themes that he no longer had the resources to achieve. I resolved, therefore, to see him and the collection at the first opportunity, to investigate the potential for a burglary with rich rewards. You see, often a collector is little interested in the simple banalities of existence, and by the time they begin to think of security, I have done my work. It was a thrilling life, I wouldn't have changed it for anything. As I mentioned, it had been my first attempt to gain access to the man, a notorious recluse. I had expected it to fail. But he had accepted in a charming letter that suggested a date and time only a couple of weeks from my first communication. Then I believed that he had succumbed to what I call the collector's curse. I suggest that this illness troubles most collectors in their later years. As the urge to accumulate subsides, and most prized objects have been acquired, with only a few elusive articles remaining, the collector realises that their project, that had kept them so energised over all the years, is futile. They have, no doubt, sacrificed friends and a family life, perhaps even the joys of children, to amass their great treasure trove. 
but it exists only as a private language, a history of connections and conquests that they alone understand. To others, it is a bizarre assemblage of useless stuff, antique or otherwise. It is then that the collector remembers the world and strives to immortalize not themselves, but the meaning of the collection. They aim to secure its future. They try to justify its structure and integrity in current form. The juxtaposition of one object alongside another must be maintained. Another curatorial hand could destroy the years of careful construction. They frequently court the press to make of their eccentricity a local legend, at least to secure some protection from the merciless predation of family or friends who might inherit what, to them, is merely a wonderful gift, only one quick deal from liquid cash. Yet, as ever, when courting the devil, one must be guarded against those keen to take advantage, those such as myself. So, although hopeful, I had not expected Mr. Umbroli to be so readily prepared to meet with me. But before I detail our encounter, let me tell you something of myself. All good collectors want to know the history of the objects they encounter. My fascination with antiques has begun straightforwardly enough. Idling in my many days of truancy around the boisterous Bermondsey market and dodging boots from the ragmen of Portobello Road, I discovered a grimy subculture of subsistence trading, the fermenting, corpulent bowels of civilization. There, Amidst the dead men's clothes and broken domestic paraphernalia, one could find gold. One morning, just as day broke, I found a tray of what looked like wooden buttons covered by a box of rusted carpentry tools. The trader was busy offloading furniture from his cart, and so I huddled beneath the groaning table of his wares and dragged the box out to check its contents. Much of it seemed to be discarded wooden blocks, mostly spherical, the purpose of which was indiscernible. However, there were a number of small carved items that seemed blackened by fire. Thinking back, I believe they may have been Victorian bogwood brooches. I was a child, their dull etchings of churches and gravestones did not interest me. Then... I found something so different that a magical awe descended to mark a moment in which my life shifted course. It was a grotesque, round face with a piggish snout and grimacing mouth exposing sharp teeth. Two embryonic horns marked its unusual demonic nature, as did the hollow eyes which bore into my soul and etched my fate instantly. I did not know it then, but it was a boxwood netske by the carver Sancho. I stared at it for some time, rubbing my dirty fingers across the smooth surface. Worn down for centuries by other hands, no doubt filthier than mine. A bizarre urge came over me. Not simply to steal the thing, that was certain, but to conceal it in my mouth like some foraging rodent, and so... I did. That is the mark of a collector's descent into fixation. The fusion of tactile pleasure with cerebral curiosity.
I adored the wooden ones the most. They always seemed warm, as though having been passed on from their previous owners only moments before. The ivory ones were cold and lifeless, but they certainly showed me the lucrative aspects of my work. For one day I discovered an intricate example of a tray of broken pottery. It was of an octopus hiding in a hole. This work was doubly intriguing, as it was inscribed with what I later learned was a haiku. Takotsubo ya, hakanaki yume wo, natsuo no tsuki. It was marked with the signature of two great carvers, Mitsuhiro and Masatsuko, who had both worked on the piece. I had discovered this item only a few months after my first one. I swiftly pocketed it and took it back to my stash, now numbering over a dozen other specimens. I took it to a dealer, one who would not ask questions. He offered me ten pounds. Ten pounds! Of course, I took it. In the 1950s, to a child, ten pounds was more money than I'd known my entire life. No doubt the dealer sold it on for five times that, and I still regret parting with it. But it inaugurated my passage into the darker criminality of exchange. So I became fascinated with these Japanese trinkets. Though still a criminal, I stole for the love of the object. Something in them captivated me and beckoned me into imaginary realms with their previous owners laughed and fought beneath empty blue skies. It was not simply their Orientalism. I was used to the many races of London's ghettos. I did not fetish the foreign. It was their obvious functionality mixed with their comical beauty that captivated me. They seemed to speak of genuine histories. It seemed I was also a collector then. My father had died of tuberculosis in his mid-thirties, shortly after I was born. He had been a miner before the war, somewhere in Wales, my mother said. They met when he was on leave in the Midlands, and they had settled in London shortly before his death. My mother was a strict woman, although I believe she had not always been so. After the death of my father, she was stricken with fear that I should become a bad boy, without the stern supervision of a male parent. So she assumed both roles, the nurturing one gradually becoming effaced by the authoritarian. You can imagine her reaction upon finding some of my treasures, and a fair amount of money from the sales of those I thought were valuable. I had no opportunity to explain. What indeed could I have said? I was a thief and my damnation was certain. Salvation, mother raged, was to be found in the riding crop that hung on the pantry door. With each beat of the crop, and there were many, the sin in me was not driven out. Rather, it blossomed. Evil rose like a blooming of fetid yeasts, breaking the skin of bruised fruits. Mother unearthed in me that day all the hate, perversity and crime a soul could disgorge, and from then on I was lost to whatever God might have once been able to save me. So 
I continued to thieve. In fact, I increased my deviousness and learnt more artful ways to deceive and lie. I preyed mostly on the vanities and secrets of those I courted. Soon I had a network of those indebted to me in various ways and a willing chain of fences and collectors eager to acquire the trophies of my crimes. So, Mr. Umbroldi was marked down as another victim of my cunning, albeit a prestigious one. His home was not what I had expected, though, located in the suburbs and suggesting little in the way of privilege. Most of these people are of fairly noble birth and live in crumbling heaps befitting such station. Umbroldi's home, though relatively large, was by no means stately, or indeed of any great age. It had most likely been chosen for its functionality. There were perhaps six or seven bedrooms, and a sizable extension had been added to the place recently, as could be seen from the short walk up the road, a cul-de-sac in which his was the last residence. He answered the door himself, another great advantage, I thought. There were no servants. If he lived alone, it would be fairly simple to almost clear the place with some thoughtful planning. I had discovered that he had fled his native Italy with the rise of the fascists, and so must be in his late eighties by now. Indeed, the man I had imagined was the one that greeted me. He would have been tall and well-built in his youth. Now, though, he leaned heavily on a cane and stooped low. He wore a brown suit, including waistcoat, with a gold watch-chain peeping from his pocket. He was, despite what I had heard, relatively genial. He invited me in, and we talked in his dining room as he served dark tea with lemon. In the couple of downstairs rooms I had seen, there was little of noticeable value. It appeared to be the home of an elderly bachelor that had made a comfortable living and was enjoying a secluded retirement. I maintained the deception over tea asking questions about his life and his collection, explaining that my paper was interested in profiling local people that may have been neglected by the usual stories of minor political misdemeanour and charity fun runs. He was very forthcoming with biographical details of his early years, his move to Britain and his interest in antiquities. Whilst this background discussion was a necessary part of my disguise, I was keen to get to see the collection as soon as I could. He detected my eagerness and offered to show me the display room. We climbed the stairs, he with surprising agility, to another realm. He must have made his living space entirely on the ground floor, for upstairs was decorated as an opulent boudoir. At every window hung thick velvet curtains tied with silk cords. The walls were a deep maroon, and the mahogany display cases that lined every wall seemed to melt into them. It was not a gloomy space, as you know by now. Instead, the surroundings were designed to retreat from the objects they framed. This succeeded very well, and each case was lit with rows of gentle bulbs that picked out each piece delicately. We passed through each room in silence. I searched the cabinets, reveling in the quality of each collection, and privately estimating the value of each.
He watched me closely, and I attempted not to give away my own knowledge. I was, after all, meant to be a local hack. I asked questions calculated to show my ignorance. He answered them patiently. In the third room, which had been knocked into the fourth to make a long gallery, I found the Oriental collection. Fine prints hung on available spaces between cabinets, and at the end of the room three full suits of samurai armour were displayed besides an entire wall given over to the helmets and face masks I had come here to expect. I calmly proceeded towards them, again feigning ignorance. But just as I entered the furthest space of this double room, I saw a large, lighter-coloured wooden case bolted to the wall. Within there was the largest collection of Inro, Netsuke and Nojime I have ever seen, and I have seen many. Scanning the case, I saw familiar examples from the great carvers and a number of works that would have been a real pleasure to have handled and discussed with him. I was conscious, though, not to give a game away. But I had not expected to encounter the same octopus piece that had been so magically unearthed and rashly sold in my youth. There it was, on the middle shelf, along with a collection of common themes, such as the fisherman, rat catcher, and a selection of ivory erotica. I gasped, astonished to discover it here. Certainly, to any observer, I had betrayed myself as rather more than a journalist after an interesting character story. Yes, it is rather beautiful, isn't it? Mr. Umbroldi said over my shoulder, startling me further. Takotsubo ya, hakanaki yume wo, natsu no tsuki, oh, in an octopus trap, dreaming useless dreams, the summer moon. I had never known what the words on the octopus Netsuke had meant, although I had learned the text by heart, as though the sense of it might be revealed by a subconscious process. I must be grateful to Umbroldi for that translation, at least, and for the joy of seeing the thing again. I tried to regain my previous control. I was rather surprised by the explicit pieces here, I said already realising how feeble an explanation this was. I did not think journalism a profession that tolerated such prudishness, Umbroldi said, leading me back out into the hallway and towards the extended area of the house. I had another here, quite some time ago now, a Mr. Joseph Tress. He was interested in the Japanese artefacts too. I must confess I found him rather vulgar. Of course, those of us who collect... Obsessively, you might say, are prone to be possessive and covetous of others' collections. But with him, it was almost hateful. He certainly had some tales to tell, though, and showed me many of my own failings. It was a joy to listen to him. He chuckled, and I felt, for the first time during our meeting, that I no longer had the upper hand. I have seen many phases to my collecting over the years. Indeed, the different parts of my collection mark all the different people I have been. He continued, Initially, I was fascinated by the studioli and cabinets of curiosity, those gathered by Vincent, Cosby, the Cotores, Bessler, Zetala, the mighty Rudolph, and others. 
Then I had very specific interests, or, more precisely, periods of interest. Antique books, wooden toys, oriental art, automata, icons, mice and porcelains, the list is long. But I returned, in a fashion, to my original passion, or close to it. I had amassed many fossils, coral sculptures, stuffed animals, anatomical deformities, and other natural exhibits. And what is it that binds all of these together, my good fellow? Existence. These things were all trophies of past lives, in one form or another. As I reassembled the collection, plundering my previously carefully constructed cabinets and display cases, I found a new direction to my work, the artistry of death. The more I looked through what had been amassed under the guise of other phases of the collection, the more of the work I found concerned with death. An illustrated first edition of Ars Moriendi, the crossed bones of St. Nicholas, some fine specimens of carved Whitby jet, including a ring with a lock of Sir Richard Fairbrace's hair, and what was to be the finest part of this new curation of my existing artefacts, it was my own history. We had come to a doorway, and I stood there listening to him as though he were some venerable grandmaster instructing an initiate. In so many ways, this was the truth. I come from an ancient Italian family, he told me. My move to Britain was made many years ago in the tumult of the century as my country struggled to etch its mark in history, a tiresome arrogance. I brought with me a case containing family relics, the index finger of every male heir in twelve generations. Each had been carefully removed, prepared to bone, and etched with the name and the date of each death. I had kept this heirloom separate to my collection, thinking it too personal. With the realisation of the new direction the collection had taken, it seemed the perfect centrepiece. But over the years, it became clear how little even those bones represented. Mere marks of life, bland souvenirs, I wanted more. Something more in the spirit of the great marvels of De Focansen and Theroud. I wanted beautiful artefacts that could give us back all the lost moments, things that could recall every detail of existence. I wanted true phenomenon machines, not the dull comforts of historical anecdote. It is here that he was overcome with fanaticism. His eyes flared with a passion far beyond the ordinary collector's. These phenomenon machines, as he called them repeatedly, would furnish us with an intimate and potentially infinite record of life. He joked that one could spend an entire lifetime listening to one of them and never exhaust its supply of stories, hinting that he had already begun work on such marvels. He did not seem like an engineer or designer, and so I was sceptical of such promises, but intrigued. Still desperate to cover my carelessness with the Netsuke, I inquired whether I might be able to see one of these prototypes. Thus, I sprung the trap. Leading me through the door and along another hallway to the newer part of the house, he revealed a room in partial disarray, with cases and various stages of display preparation. By the window on the far side of the room, where, no doubt, you now stand, 
there was a tall cupboard of dark black wood. It was not antique, I guessed, but its proportions, tall, thin, and shallow, made it fitting for the task that was to be revealed to me. With not a little theatricality, he opened the case, and there was arrayed, each on a thin black cushion, rows of human skulls. There were probably thirty in total, each bearing a trace of gold upon their forehead, a name and a date. He took one out and offered it to me. I took it, as no doubt you have done, appalled and enthralled by the impropriety of this act. Ridiculous, given my motives for being in his home. And then the thing began to unravel its past, its words arising around and within me at once. He left me there as it poured out its tale. I may have listened to it for hours, I do not recall. I merely remember the marvel and terror of standing there like some naive hamlet, skull in hand, awaiting his return. And return he did, with the air of a distant relative bearing sad tidings. Isn't it the saddest thing that all of life, which can only ever be our experience, is lost at the moment of death, he said, his worn face folded around the rapture of his eyes. Every beautiful landscape, every heartbreaking moment, and every instance of elation dissolves into time. For me, it is not enough to imagine what Neanderthal man thought as he witnessed lightning for the first time. I want a record of this world, a whispering testimony of life and all of its journeys. I believe it is what God created man for, a listening device that he might understand the vastness of his own creation. Time will only be completed. It is an ancient belief, I'm sure you know, when all of the distant elements of that gargantuan mechanism are reunited with that great universal archivist. I do not want that, so little by little I am stealing that back from him, and you, my little shard of godliness, will be another eternal jewel in my store of truth. And so my mortal glory faded. Thus you find yourself here too, with my skull cradled to your ear. Perhaps you thought it an ingenious device, with a hidden reel of tape or some other broadcast trickery. No, I speak inside your mind, your audience enacts me. I do not know what has brought you here. Useless dreams of summer moons? Maybe you are, as I was once, a trickster and a fool. You may be simply, and more unfortunately, an interested collector, a historian, an academic. I believe all the endings are the same. For now, you too, having patiently followed this confession of mine, will find yourself subject to that cruel fate delivered by the strange collector of curiosities. Hark, I hear him approach. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was D.P. Watts' Memento Mori as read by Jason Stubbs. Born in Staffordshire, England, Jason moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronics engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas Metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Scott Siegler and J.C. Hutchins fueled his addiction, forcing him to search for more podcasts as his addiction grew. Thank you, Jason. Our third and final story for the night comes to us from L.R. Bonehill, a writer from the dark heart of England. His short fiction has been published by Dark Fuse, W.W. Norton, Strange Publications, This Is Horror, and various other haunts. His stories have been produced in audio by Cast Macabre, right here at Tales to Terrify, and Pseudopod. Vent, a tale of woe from horror without victims, received an honorable mention in Ellen Datlow's The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 6. Right now, he should be writing, but probably isn't. And here comes L. R. Bonehill's Vent. How much? Imogen said as she took the knife and made the first tentative cut. She bit her teeth together, lips slightly parted, her face set in an expression she hadn't held for years. She rolled her tongue around the difficult ma sound. Much, much, she whispered. Much. Substitution, Emmy. It's all about substitution, she reminded herself. Find another sound, an easier sound. Say it quickly and with confidence. It was all in the confidence of their delivery. When he got right down to brass tacks, that's all there was to it. A sheen of sweat glistened on her forehead. With the heating turned up and the blue flames dancing in the fire, it was too hot for her. She had already stripped off her frayed cardigan and was standing over the table in a sleeveless top. She felt her hand start to shake and drew it away, 
closing her eyes and breathing deeply. She counted to ten and opened her eyes again. She had made the first cut. She could do it again. It would be easier, she reasoned. The kitchen devil steadied in her thin, bird-like hand, and she went back to work. She had watched Daddy work countless times over the years, sitting at the same kitchen table with newspaper spread out across the top. Not that he ever made a mess. Daddy had always been scrupulously clean. She remembered sitting there watching his practice hands going through the motions of maintenance, retouching, and cleaning with brisk efficiency. He'd sing and hum to himself, and she'd breathe in the smells of paint and the cold tar soap that he used to scrub his fingernails. Sometimes he'd help her practice, resting his elbow on the table, opening and closing his hand as he listened to her. More often than not, though, home was for catching up on schoolwork she'd missed out on, and playing with friends she saw all too little of. It was on the road that she'd practice, on the road that she'd learned to perfect the skills Daddy taught her, on the road that she was happiest. Part of it, a large part, was observation. Imogen would sit in the front row of an empty theatre and watch as Daddy ran through his routine. The strange thrill of being in audience of one, surrounded by vacant seats, knowing that the place would soon fill with holiday-makers, never left her in all their years on the road. It was as if she had some secret knowledge, some special insight. Laughing a joke she'd heard more than a hundred times before, knowing that the whole room would be laughing in the same places in a few hours. Then she'd sit in the darkened wings of a seaside theatre, watching Horace Tate and his little mate, as she picked at a small mound of pumpkin seeds. She'd quickly grown bored with nights of candy floss and butter popcorn, and Daddy said too much would rot her teeth anyway. He also didn't want little Horace, or the trunk, or anything else he might trust her with, covered in sticky finger marks. All the while, she'd watched intently and listened closely, sometimes trying to catch him out, and always failing. She'd examined the tight line of his jaw as he made little Horace talk, focused on his pale lips and their almost, almost imperceptible movement, as little Horace spun out one-liners and quick-fire retorts. Imogen would mouth the routine from her place in the wings, hitting the beats dead on, unless Daddy weared off into improvisation or harangued a heckler. Even then, she could pick one of a dozen comebacks and be right on the money more often than not. Sometimes, she thought she knew the act better than Daddy did, better than Horace. Night after night, the dummy sat on Daddy's lap, the two of them spotlit from above, and bathed in the dusty glow of the footlights. Dressed in the same suit and tie, the same polka-dot shirt, the same twenties-style spats, wooden hair carved into the same slick cut. A man and his shrunken double, resting atop his knee with a strange, fleshless grin. One and the same, Horace and Horace. That way, there's no argument over who gets top billing, he'd always say. Night after night, she'd watch in quiet awe, as Daddy breathed life into something chiselled and carved, something cold and inanimate, and longed to do the same herself. One day, Daddy would make her a dummy, and they could share the stage, share the laughter and the noise from the stalls. All she had to do was practice. After the show, they would walk along the pier, listening to the dark sea rumble against the timber pilings, and the drunken chatter from dimly lit bars and cabaret rooms. 
Daddy would let her carry little Horace's trunk if she was careful not to bang it against the boards or the iron railings. Sometimes he'd even let her have little Horace in her room, and she'd sit in front of the mirror, running through her own routine, moving his mouth, not hers, as she clutched at the mechanism in his back. Daddy taught her not to clench her jaw as she had a tendency to do, but to freeze it, pull it down and back, make the muscles taut, run through the alphabet, ease the letters first, followed by the stubborn plosive and fricative sounds. Roll the tongue, push it against the upper teeth and lip. Substitute sounds. Substitution, Immy. Substitution, practice, confidence, and patter. He'd count them off on the stubs of his fingers, and finish with a wink that told her she could do it. She really could. So she'd sit with little Horace until she was too tired to do anything but reluctantly set him at the end of her bed. Then she'd fall asleep to the sound of waves lapping at the shore as little Horace watched over her, his bright blue eyes gleaming in the moonlight, his silhouette dark, and his shadow long. The sign over the entrance read Sunset Tide in chipped and faded paint. Scars of damp, rotten wood were visible amid the bleached blues and yellows. Set back from the ocean front, and facing the overflowing bins of a Chinese takeaway, Imogen doubted the place had ever felt the touch of the sun or the spray of the tide. The same could be said for the sparse clientele, hunched in shadows at the rear of the bar, pale hands nursing pint glasses. It wasn't the first bar she'd been in since walking out on the show, and she was relieved when the room lost its fuzzy edge, snapping into focus as she sat down. Her head still swam a little, but at least it dulled the pang of shame that tugged at her. She wasn't cut out for life on stage, she knew that now. Confidence, or rather lack of confidence, knocked her back. Daddy, still Daddy, always Daddy, despite her yes, had drilled the rest into her, and she could effortlessly parrot the routine from her place in the wings. Quietly mouthing the act in the shadows, fingers clasping and unclasping in time to little Horace's quips and puns, lips steady and motionless for anyone backstage who cared to notice. Confidence, mastery of stage fright, though, was the one thing he had never been able to instil in her. Once in front of the expectant audience, she floundered, and tonight, she decided, she had floundered for the last time. Horace and Horace remained, but there would be no little Immy. She sat cradling a glass of wine that she also swore would be her last. It tasted cheap and bitter, coating her tongue and drying her mouth. She trailed a finger down the stem of the glass and considered throwing it against the wall, breaking the mirror that sat beside the bar. For a moment or two she wished she smoked. She needed something to do with her hands. They were shaking, and she wanted it to stop, wanted everything to stop. She'd left Daddy to pack the dummy and the props, left him to make his own way back to the hotel on the promenade. In all their years on the road, she'd never done that before. She should go back, and she would, but not yet. She felt rather than saw someone peel away from the pack of drinkers against the far wall and make their way over to her. A bear glass was set down on a sodden mat beside her. Froth and spittle clung to the rim. He said his name was Gavin, and she could see the lie behind his eyes, and the uncertainty of his smile as he sat down next to her. He plucked the limp roll-up from his mouth and blew a plume of smoke towards the bear pulse, then pincered some loose tobacco from his tongue with grubby fingertips. 
he fingered the wedding ring, twirling it up against the thick knuckle. It caught the light of a double diamond sign over the row of optics. But she didn't care, and, in the end, neither did he. She needed comfort and reassurance. Pinned against the damp wall of an alley, she found neither. They didn't kiss, not once. It suited them both that way. She made another cut, this one parallel to the first, and about the same length. A thin line ran six inches or so up from the tip of the knife. A third cut would join the two together at the base. It was easier than expected, and she felt herself relax a little. Much, much, she said, stealing a glance in the bathroom mirror she'd set on the table-top. A jagged crack ran across the glass, splicing her face in two. She ignored the sallow tint of her skin and the wild straggle of hair, the eyes that looked like smudges of ash, and the almost crazed look in those grey smudges. The knife-blade blurred at the edges of her vision as she wiped beads of sweat from her forehead. "'This much,' said the pale reflection from the mirror. He looked smaller, somehow, when he opened the door, as if her sudden departure had siphoned something out of him. There was a hollow, carved look to his cheeks, and his sunken eyes were moist. Diminished, she thought. As he ushered her into the room, she began to notice things she had stubbornly refused to pick up on before. The smattering of grey at his temples, the waxen sheen of his skin, the slow stiffness he walked with as he shut the door behind her. He made his way over to the only chair in the room. It was a battered wooden affair, with a greasy, threadbare seat, and it looked rickety at best. "'Bloody knee sounds like Velcro,' he said as he sat down. He'd been drinking. A bottle of famous grouse sat beside a tumbler on the table, where shards of ice melted and merged. Two fingers of whisky were all he usually allowed himself, but it looked like he'd had more than that. Not drunk, not yet, but maybe as close as she'd ever seen. Another twinge of shame nagged at her. Who the hell was she to judge?' She sat on the bed, smoothed out the coarse blanket, and put her hands in her lap. She picked at a nail, waiting for him to speak. The silence spun out, filling the space between them, until he coughed and poured another shot into his glass. The rough scar on her back itched like it always did when she was uncomfortable. "'You know, Immy,' he said at last, "'it's not something you have to do. It's not a mantle that I have to pass on to you.' She kept her head lowered, eyes fixed on her hands. She should have just gone straight back to her own room. They could have talked it over in the morning. He was right, after all. She didn't have to take to the stage. Just because it was right for him didn't mean it was right for her. "'You're good, Immy. You know you're good. But if you're not comfortable—' He trailed off, swirling the ice in the glass. "'Well, that's not something I can teach you.' I can tell you this, though. It gets easier. I was terrified. You wouldn't believe how terrified. Those first few nights. I was no Edgar Bergen myself back then, and it wasn't exactly the Palladium. Ten minutes, that's all I had to fill, before the second act. What was his name? Some god-awful crooner who couldn't hold a note in a handbasket. Imogen tuned out. She'd heard it all before, more times than she cared to remember. He was only trying to help, she knew that, but she wasn't in a mood for well-intentioned nostalgia. 
"'I'm sorry, that's all,' she said, not sure he'd heard her, not even sure she'd spoken out loud. "'Your mother just wanted you to be happy, that's all, and so do I. You meant everything to her. Both of you.' He downed his whisky and poured another. The neck of the bottle chattered against the rim of the tumbler. Imogen looked up and saw his eyes film with tears. He looked older and more vulnerable than she ever thought possible. "'What?' she said. She heard her voice crack. It sounded small and lost, even in the cramped space of the hotel room. She saw the fire escape notice reflected in the window, and wanted to run. Her ghost image was frozen there, caught between the rotting frames, taut and stiff. Her chest flushed with a surge of blood that rose quickly to her head, as her skin prickled with sudden goose-flesh. "'What?' she repeated. Daddy's flint-grey eyes flicked down at the floor, skittering over the worn paisley pattern and the ground-in grease-marks. He rubbed long, shaking fingers across his eyes, down his drawn cheeks, and sighed, the breath leaving his body in a throaty wheeze. He leaned over to ease little Horace from the open trunk at the foot of the bed. The familiar sound of those wooden joints clacking into place rattled down Imogen's spine. He sat the dummy on his knees, and worked the Richter's grin, while little Horace told her what Daddy never could. "'Substitution, Emmy. It's all about substitution,' the age-old refrain from her childhood looped endlessly in her head. The room was damp and musty. She could taste it on her tongue and the back of her throat. She'd pulled the window open to let the sea-breeze in, Rain speckled the frame, and the suitcase nudged against the wall. It made no difference. Her head still buzzed, and the air was still acrid and bitter. She felt her stomach roil, and the room tilt on its unstable axis. She lay on the narrow bed, knowing that if sleep came it would be fitful at best. She imagined snatches of dreams full of silence and regret, bones and decay, dust and ash. Pictured her mouth full of dark earth, cold and moist, crumbling around her teeth, her tongue, her throat, gagging her, choking her as she clawed at the impossible weight of dirt compacted around her. She saw ruffled sheets, the ghost impression of a small body in a small bed, the broken promise of a child taken away all too soon. An unknown child, an unknown sister, another Imogen. A mouth packed with earth. The incessant loop spun on and on. Imogen cut again, scoring a thin line to connect the parallel cuts at the top. There was now a neat oblong box shape that seemed to be about the right size. She'd have to cut deeper, though. Maybe find another knife, something with a serrated edge, like a row of shark teeth. Something that would dig deep and true. There was the long bread-knife that she used to slice through crusty loaves or breakfast grapefruit, but that would be too unwieldy. The kitchen devil fit her hand seamlessly, and the blade seemed the right length for such a close work. Maybe she should just bear down with more force. She thought of the grapefruit again, and cuts of pork that bled on the chopping-board. "'Mummy,' she said through still lips, and checked herself in the mirror. The irony of Rory's reluctance to talk wasn't lost on either her or her father. She found it a struggle raising a child as a single parent, 
and this stalling in his development was just another obstacle for her to stumble over. Daddy helped when he could, how he could. It was his idea to bring little Horace out of retirement in an attempt to nudge Rory's speech forward. They were both concerned about his lack of progress, especially since he'd turned three. He'd been dropping consonants and substituting syllables for a while before the words seemed to dry up completely. It was as if he'd decided he'd already said all that he wanted to say, and that was that. "'Maybe he thinks no one's listening,' Daddy said in a low, gravel-filled voice. He shot her a look that cut down to the bone. The boy had clung to his mother, small hands gripping at her and squeezing hard as little Horace was lifted from the cold storage of his trunk. "'It's a body,' she thought. "'That's what Rory sees, a child's body yanked from a coffin.' She felt him tremble against her and stroked his hair, kissing the top of his head. "'It's all right, my love,' she breathed in his air. "'It's just Grandad's silly old friend Horace.' Rory was silent and clutched at her harder still, his face buried in her chest. "'Don't you want to say hello to little Horace?' she said. "Mummy talked to him all the time when she was your age.' She took hold of his shoulders and tried to ease him round. "'He's ever such a silly old thing.' She felt his fingers loosen a little then, felt him yield as she slowly coaxed him, all the while whispering gentle reassurances. Eventually he twisted away from her, taking a cautious step forward, one hand still grabbing at her pullover. He pointed at the dummy and looked quickly back at her. His mouth opened and, for a second, she thought he was going to say something, however small or nonsensical. A thin line of spittle drooped from his wet lips onto his T-shirt, falling squarely on the head of a cartoon lion with an exaggerated mane and a wide, grinning maw. He took another step forward, and another— one star-shaped hand held out towards the dummy, two fingers of another planted firmly in his cheek. Imogen saw the red indentation of teeth marks on them, as he pulled his fingers out and stood in front of little Horace. "'Hello, Rory. Very pleased to meet you,' the dummy said, hand thrust out in greeting by a concealed rod attached to the elbow. Rory reached out, touched the hand with the fused fingers, and giggled. He looked up into the sculpted face with the rosy cheeks and the dusting of freckles. Rory clapped as the round, startled eyes rolled and the long-lashed lids battered with a shake of the head. He ran a finger down one dimpled cheek, down the deep grow of laughter lines and across the ruby lips. He scratched at the white teeth and the space where a front tooth had been daubed away with black paint. Little Horace bit down with an audible snap of wood and snickered. Rory screamed. It was hard and messy work, but using a little more force had done the trick. She dug her fingers deep into one side of the box shape she gorged and pulled. Pulled harder, muscles tense and straining, until the section wrenched free with a wet tearing sound. Almost done. She set her jawline, glanced in the mirror. She ignored what she saw there, other than the position of the jaw and the set of her bloodless lips. Good, she thought, and relaxed her features. How much? she asked the woman in the mirror. The speech therapist had a lisp, and told her nothing she didn't already know. A row of crooked teeth sat in a mouth that looked too small. He looked barely out of university, and spoke with a condescension that made her temples pound and her blood sizzle. 
he asked a lot of questions in a hushed, rapid-fire burst that confused her. Motor skills, attention span, interaction, confidence, swallowing, all of it jotted down in a pad with small, neat capitals. There was a constant slyness in the way he looked at her, always catching her eye as he knelt on the floor with Rory, his gaze creeping across her chest. She stormed out part way through the third session, certain that it hinted at abuse. Flashcards and rubber building blocks scattered to the floor as she pulled Rory to her. She slammed the door behind her as hot tears of frustration stung her eyes. A fine drizzle fell as she cut across the half-empty car park. She unlocked the mini and yanked the door open. Rory tried to step away and she realised she'd been holding his hand too tightly. His fingers were red, the skin around his hand blanched. She rubbed his hand between her palms and kissed his fingertips. "'Sorry, my love,' she said, picking him up and placing him in a seat. She handed him the battered action figure that lay amongst a litter of juice cartons and empty sweet packets. "'We'll go somewhere nice, get away from here. How does that sound?' Rory nodded and grinned, pulling at the arms of his talking commander. "'Maybe get something nice to eat, eh?' Imogen said. Rory nodded faster, grinned wider. She ruffled his blonde curls and trailed a thumb up and down his cheek. "'Do you know how much Mommy loves you, little man?' she said. Another nod from Rory. "'And how much does Rory love Mommy?' Rory gave a long, considered nod that made the hood of his raincoat rustle. Imogen held her index finger and thumb slightly apart. "'This much?' she asked. Rory looked her in the eye and giggled. She set her fingers a little further apart. This much, then. This time Rory shook his head vigorously and held his own fingers about two inches apart. Oh, I think it's more than that, Imogen said with mock indignation. She spaced her palms about six inches away from each other. How about this much? A single hiccup of laughter from Rory as she pulled her hands further away. This much? Further. This much? Further. This much? Rory locked his bright eyes on hers and flung his arms wide with a cackle. "'Rory loves Mommy this much!' he said with glee, and it was a sound of rapturous applause calling for an encore. Imogen's heart stopped for a brief moment, and she felt herself flush with the closest thing to joy she'd ever felt. "'This much,' she said quietly. As the rain began to fall harder, Imogen laughed, and then she cried and thought she'd never stop. Rory was cold when she went to wake him for breakfast. Cold and stiff. His dull eyes stared blankly at the web of cracks in the ceiling. Her first thought was of Imogen, the other Imogen. Surely that would have been labelled as Cotbeth, had they had a name for it all those years ago. Was this the same? At four years old, could it be the same? Mouth full of dirt. She breathed and felt her legs almost give way, felt the world shrink around her, compressing her. She heard a horribly pitched keening wail a thousand miles away, and was only distantly aware that the awful sound came from her. On and on it went, piercing her ears, impossibly long, impossibly mournful. No, no, no! No! She touched him again, and the coldness brought sour bile to her mouth. 
It was like touching the white belly of a fish laid out on clusters of ice. Her head thrummed with a grey haze that needled at her vision. "'Wake up!' she spat and slapped him across the cheek. Slapped him again harder. Nothing. Those empty eyes still gazed over her head. She stumbled to the bathroom and grabbed the small mirror that sat by the sink back to the bedroom on legs that had been whittled to stilts. She fumbled with the mirror and held it above his dry lips, waited for a slow, shallow breath to miss the glass. Nothing. She slapped his cheek again, brought the mirror down in a long, brutal arc to smack against his mouth. The sound of cracking glass sickened her. The sight of a dislodged front tooth sickened her more. She crumpled to the floor, held one chilled hand in her own, and let the world swallow her whole. Thirteen rises, she'd counted them, counted each time Rory's head banged against the steps as she dragged him down by the feet. She felt too weak to carry him and was scared she would drop him or miss her footing. She struggled through to the kitchen and heaved him onto the pine table. Then she cranked the heating dial and turned on the fire in the living room, leaving the door wide open for the heat to circulate. It was still so cold. The world was black. Nothing else existed. Nothing else mattered. Just her and Rory and the job at hand. With Daddy's tool around her, Imogen set to work. She'd already prepared the ice before making the first cut polished them to a nice, bright sheen, taken paint to the pallor of his cheeks and given them a round, rosy glow, dabbed orange freckles over the bridge of the nose and tamed the shock of hair, prized the loosened front tooth from its gum. The rest could come later. The hinges, the jaw pivots, the swivels, the wires, the arm rods that she'd slot in to scrape through sinew and grate against bone, all that could wait. She had wrapped the chunk of flesh she had taken so much time cutting in newspaper and dropped it on the floor, cleaned out the wound as best as she could and tried not to gag. She lifted Rory and placed him gently on her lap. She held him close, felt his cold cheek brush hers and set his stiff legs against her own, pushed down on knees mottled a cruel purple with rigor mortis. There was a dry creak she told herself she didn't hear, she arranged both hands in his lap, snapping stubborn fingers into a neat, thoughtful repose. Yellow light from the dust-covered bulb ahead gave the child a jaundiced look. Their shadows jittered across the floor as the fire flickered in the next room. Substitution, Immy, she reminded herself and closed her eyes. Pictured them both on stage playing to empty theatre seats. Not empty, she decided. Daddy was there eager and expectant, holding what could have been a baby wrapped in a pink blanket. Even this far away, it was easy to see the crescents of earth beneath his fingernails. Little Horace took an awkward step from the wings, wooden joints bent at odd angles. He came forward through a fog machine mist with a strange, delicately uncoordinated gait. His legs flopped uselessly at the scarred and pitted stage, yet still somehow managed to propel him forward. The sickly glow of the spotlight tracked him, wide eyes rolling, jaw slack, grubby hands reaching out for her. Step by step, he approached in a jumble of clattering limbs. 
She wanted to back away, but couldn't, fear freezing her, and finally Horace was close enough to scrabble up the chair. He clutched and pawed at her, and she gagged at the fetid reek that shrouded him. The spotlight bulb sparked and blew, slamming them into darkness as Horace whispered in her ear, mulched earth falling from his mouth to spatter her neck. Imogen jerked in her seat and snapped open her eyes. Rory, she thought, as her heart hammered, felt him still cold and rigid in her lap, despite the overwhelming heat. Then, no, little Rory. "'How much does Rory love Mummy? she asked, and took hold of the spine through the ragged hole she had carved in his back. Grim determination lined her face, as she eased her teeth together, lips slightly apart and motionless. She pressed down on one smooth vertebra and waited for him to tell her. That was L. R. Bonehill's Vent, as read by K. G. Cross. K. G. Cross is 30 years old and works in freelance, including as a professional audiobook narrator. She has a long background in theater and books, as well as being an educated librarian. She has six years' experience in narration, and you can find her page at kgcross.net. Thank you, KG. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you find your podcasts. Our show was produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.